Do plants speak? Might rocks store memory? Can trees hear? Is soil perceptive? Can lichen give us an ozone report? And do the hairs on your arm have something to say? You know, most often humans think of language as written, spoken, or even signed. But communication happens or struggles to happen constantly all around us. In fact, your own body translates messages without your conscious awareness all day, every day, passing chemical and electrical signals between your cells, telling you when to eat, when to be afraid, and when and how to respond to other sensory information. So if humans are part of nature and humans are always communicating, is the rest of nature always communicating too? If this is sounding a bit animistic, or even like I'm saying that nature might have a case of synesthesia, well, welcome to This Plus That, a show about connecting the seemingly unconnectable and why it matters. Wild mashups like this are what we do here. And my name is Brandy, I'm your host. In today's conversation, I talk with Ashley Eliza Williams about the intersections of communication plus nature. Ashley is a painter, sculptor, and amateur ecologist exploring new ways of interacting with nature and with each other. She received a BA from UVA and an MFA from the University of Colorado Boulder. And forgive me, I'm going to try really hard not to butcher languages that I don't uh, actually know here, but I am doing my absolute best, I promise, to respect uh, <laughs> respect them and try to pronounce them as best as possible. But here we go. Uh, she's a recent Mass Mocha North Adams Project grantee and has been a resident artist at Vermont Studio Center, Anderson Ranch, Malay Colony, Alta Schule, Germany, the Shenguian Art Museum in China, and the Sitka Center for Art and Ecology. Her work has been shown nationally and internationally at museums, galleries, and scientific institutions. She's a member of the research-focused NYC art collective Sprechgesen Institute. Williams has taught painting, sculpture, and color theory for six years, and she currently lives in Massachusetts. Some of what we cover in this conversation includes anxiety, awkwardness, and failed, quote-unquote, failed communication attempts as subjects of Ashley's work, the dialogue between plants, animals, and even celestial bodies, which humans often envy as we struggle to communicate with each other, the mutual aid practices of nature, like lichen and trees. I always love those stories. They're so cool. I can't wait for you to hear this conversation, honestly. It's so awesome. Um, we also talk about a story of the forest near Ashley's suburban childhood home, the conversion of that land into a strip mall, and how all of that turned her into an environmentalist at an early age what lichen communicate to us about pollution, the language we use about the natural world and how it shapes our engagement with it, and the way our engagement with nature shapes our language in return, including how we think about time, the Western perception of time as scarce and how it also shapes our language, which then impacts our behavior, Ashley's dad and his creative way of conjuring up original bedtime stories with her and her sister when they were young, her fascination with magical beings and the history of monsters, why we might pray to pollinator deities in the future, the ancient memory of rocks and trees, and so, so, so much more. A few notes before we hop in. Um, through the first half of the interview, you're going to hear some bumps and scuffles. That is totally on me. When we recorded this interview, I was still learning a lot about capturing great audio, and I didn't catch it until we were halfway through talking. It's not a huge deal before then, but the background sounds go away after that. Ashley also brings up the concept of deep time 
in this conversation. And if you're interested in reading more about it, check out the episode show notes where I link to an article about deep time and how our perception of it is changing. But other than that, this is the interview. Enjoy this amazing chat I had with Ashley Eliza Williams on communication plus nature. In an article by George Monbiot, and I'm going to guess he's French, so maybe it's Monbiot. Who knows? Uh, But uh, he wrote an article in The Guardian called Forget the Environment. We need new words to convey life's wonders. And he says, at some point, indigenous people, whether in the Arctic Circle or the Australian bush, have always known what some people in the so-called developed world are just discovering, that language and the land are continuous. Indigenous people have always known that the land and the other human and non-human creatures who live there informs the language of its inhabitants. Only an illiterate invader thinks of this river, that herd of bison, or the wind itself as a mere resource. Only a benighted land management consultant can blissfully ignore the fact that our relationship to the land around us is, or should be, a dialogue, and that participation in that dialogue can involve deep knowledge not only of the words, but also of the things they denote. And I, I feel like that's a really great place to start with you because I feel like so much of what I love about your work is that it seems to always be not only in conversation, even with itself, but also just the natural word, uh, the natural world and yeah, the way that we engage with it. So um, can we start off by just hearing what you do in the world? Oh, um, <laughs> it's always sure. like the hard, I feel like it's always the hardest question I ask anyone because they're like, how do I boil that down to? That's quite yeah. a question. Okay. Well, um, I'm an artist. Um, I sometimes teach, uh, I'm a volunteer crisis counselor mm-hmm. and I spend a lot of time in nature looking at weird fungi <laughs> and, and rocks oh, and, and <laughs> and, yeah. rocks and and lichens and things growing inside inside of other things, um, and I also I spend a lot of time with my my partner and my family who are wonderful, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also spend a lot of time being a kind of an anxious neurotic person who jumps at small <laughs> noises, and <laughs> I make a lot of checklists which uh, helps me feel about seventeen percent more balanced. And um, I do a lot of scrolling through political news and environmental news uh, Uh and and getting really freaked out about everything. But I intersperse that with weird science facts and incredibly fuzzy baby animal photos. That's pretty much what I do. What is it that you, like, what does your artwork really center around? Like, what do you like to paint? What what kinds of things do you typically uh, work with in the world? Like, what concepts are... Yeah, what, what is it that you're, you're more often painting than not? Okay, yeah, I, I paint um, mostly non-human things. Mm. Um, a lot of geological forms, kind of fundamental forms in nature, like rocks and clouds. And um, I think a lot about kind of alternative ways of kind of interacting with nature and with each other. I'm really interested mm. in, in um, language and kind of non-human language mm. and 
exploring all of those things. But I'm an oil painter and I also make sculptures, little sculptures. And just recently I've started making kind of cutout paintings that I have been in, you know, taking on walks and putting in different places and filming them, uh, mm. which has been really fun. Yeah, I love that. Uh, I want to go back though. There was, uh, you know, just in sort of introducing yourself, like you mentioned that you are a human that has some anxiety and, and neuroses. Uh, is there a way that you feel like that shows up in your artwork? Like, is there a part of that that you're trying to communicate? Like I mean, maybe I... loneliness or, um, yeah, just the awkwardness of being. Yes. <laughs> It's all about the awkwardness of being. Uh, <laughs> that's a good way to put it. Um, I love awkward forms, uh, and I mean, all of, I think I'm an artist because I'm I'm awkward and I have a hard time connecting and always have. And so, I make I've made a series of kind of communication attempts. I think a lot of my work is actually communication attempts. So I'm trying mm-hmm. to connect either with humans or with with creatures or or um, other elements in nature and trying to explore different ways of kind of getting to know each other. Yeah. Yeah. And I I feel like it's worth describing for anyone who doesn't know your work that often I feel like those, like I said, your, your work is not, not just sort of communication attempts, but like, uh, a dialogue. And, and I love that you so often set up, you know, like there will be, if it's a gallery exhibit, pieces on the wall, but then a piece right in front of it that's like tangible 3D structural in front of it that looks like they're having a talk. <laughs> you know, like there's always this sort of element of a chat back and forth. Yeah. Where does that interest in communication or language come from for you? Is it sort of part of that, like your own struggle with communication and that feeling awkward or do you feel like that comes from somewhere else definitely all all of that I mean I am someone who kind of I uh, adore language and I read voraciously and always have and I think my like the story of my life is is similar to others and that perhaps in that it's kind of a series of communication attempt failures. <laughs> right. So often failures, right? So like how, how communication often doesn't work or how maybe language is limited at capturing things and maybe how we often mistranslate things. Am exactly. I getting it? Something? Yes, exactly. Yes. I, uh, I, I love, I love language. I love reading. I actually love writing, but I often feel extremely limited by by language. And I feel like we're all trying to express so many weird and complicated things all the time. And we have just a few little vocabulary words, words to try to get these things across. And so that's why I'm interested in looking at, um, I mean, I'm fascinated by non-human forms of communication. And I'm kind of mm-hmm. uh, jealous of, of trees and birds and micro microrisal networks and the ways they can. Yeah. Why are you jealous? What's, what's so cool about those to you? Cause I feel like, yeah, my, one of my questions is just like, how does language apply to nature? So how does, how do things like trees and, you know, mosses and my, my, uh, 
What are they called? <laughs> I'm like forgetting <laughs> the name. Mycorrhizal networks, I think. Yeah, but I was also, I was trying to think of uh, mycelium and, you oh, know, yeah, things yeah. like that. So like what, yeah, what is it that you feel like is cool that you're jealous of that those things, commun- like how they communicate, I guess, is what I'm hearing? Yes, I mean... Just um, photosynthesis envy. Actually, Robin Wall Kemmerer talks about photosynthesis envy, and I, I love it. Uh, just this idea that that uh, that a plant can communicate in a way with a celestial body. How incredible is that? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, like I mean, they they are in relationship and in dialogue. Yeah, yeah. Also, the sun yeah. and a plant, the tree, yeah. tree and a plant. And yeah. I mean, we're just now learning ha- about all the complexities that trees can, like all, all the complex ways that trees are communicating with each other. I don't mm-hmm. know if you know about acacia trees. No. And there's, um, oh my goodness, it's a kind of a, a longer story, but they, um, they can, acacia trees can warn each other about danger. Um, there's this kind of, Oh yeah. 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 You, you know, that story. I, well, about, I've heard it about trees in general, not necessarily a specific species, but like, continue. So don't let me interrupt you. There are these antelopes, I think called kudu. Um, I think this is in South Africa that eat the acacia trees mm. and during times of drought, they'll eat too many of the trees. And so mm. the trees are able to send this chemical signal to each other across really vast distances, mm-hmm. telling each other to telling the, the other trees to produce this kind of poison so that uh-huh. the, the, um, you know, the antelope can't eat yeah. them, yeah. which is freaking fascinating. It's so cool. I was listening to this. I think it was Radio Lab. I'll, I'll find it and then link to it in the show notes. But I was listening to this uh, Radio Lab um, show that was talking like they were sort of debating or trying to figure out how trees hear. And like they were doing they were talking about all these people who have done experiments to try to figure out like exactly how a tree limb underground will find water. Oh and so God. like, is it that the outside of the tree has like little filaments on it, sort of like the inside of our nose or inside of our ears or something, or is it, um, yeah, is it felt? Is it heard? Like what, what is it that sort of, and I, I haven't finished it yet, so I don't actually know the answer or if they got to some sort of conclusion, but yeah, that's sort of anything that's like an underground network of anything that transmits communication to each other is so cool. I love to, I think this is actually, I don't know if it was this American life or a radio lab, a long time ago, I listened to the one that's about like, you know, they will also like die for each other, you know, like they'll, oh, mm-hmm. they'll give up like they'll nutrients and send them to someone else, yeah. uh, someone else, another tree, which yeah. I'm already talking in animistic <laughs> terms, but yeah, they'll, they'll send, um, yeah, nutrients to other trees that are struggling or like give mm-hmm. up of their life if they know that they're already in too much danger that they're probably going to die in some sort of like insect infestation or something so that like other trees can live that yeah it's it's so, so cool. beautiful so um, cool and we don't even we don't do that right there are things that trees are doing there's like a kind of a community right. it's mutual it, aid it, right yeah. it's like true right. it's to me I love it because I feel like it speaks about like that the nature of the actual universe rests on mutual aid that mm-hmm. like this idea that um we all collectively survive together, right? Uh, which which actually sounds a lot like lichen in a way too, right? That I think they do similar things. 
Right. So like it. Yes, my obsession of like it. Thank you. Thank you for reminding me. Uh, yeah. Well, you can't bring up Robin Wall Kimmerer without somehow getting to mosses and lichens. And true, that's true. Yeah, I mean, right? We've forgotten, right? We've forgotten these things, and we have to we have to look at things like lichen. And so, lichen are, you know, we're learning more and more about them. But they um, are a mutualistic um, composite organism. So they emerge from algae or cyanobacteria living among filaments of fungi. <laughs> and they, um, and so they're, they're all kind of all, those, those three organisms are helping each other to survive. They used mm-hmm. to think it was a kind of a parasitic relationship, but now they're realizing it's more of a mutualistic relationship, which is really beautiful. So cool. I love to, there was something, uh, an article you passed me that again, I'll share in the show notes, but something about how for years scientists tried to replicate making lichen in a lab and they only knew of two of the components and they kept trying to make it over and over again and could never yes. like synthetically sort of make lichen happen until someone came around and realized that there was actually a third component that was sort of buried in one of the two that no one would have ever seen if, you know, if not for some sort of wild circumstance that led him to make that discovery and yeah, that, that it's like, it could not exist, exist if there was not a third component, which is it took so them cool. so long to figure that out, and which I think is also cool because it's sort of like, uh, I mean, it's like outside of the binary, right? Like at first they yeah. thought there were just two things and now it's of like, course. Oh, this thing literally would not exist if it weren't for a third sort of dance between, you know, organic orga- organisms in the world, which is super cool. And very poetic. So poetic. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so h- how did you, like, what is of importance to you, like, w- in terms of the natural world? Like, how did you come to sort of feel like that was the thing that you wanted to keep sort of um, focusing your work around? Or how you came to love the natural world, I guess? When I was growing up, um, my parents were small business owners, and they uh-huh. had a little, little store in a strip mall. And um, my sister and I would kind of play behind the store in the uh, parking lot. Uh, but there was this little kind of patch of nature um, amidst all of that that um, had a surprising amount of life in it. Um, it was a kind of a piece of a mountain with a, a stream running through it. And we saw beavers back there. We saw deer and rabbits and all kinds of incredible creatures. And the, the bus would drop us off at the edge of this area. And we had to walk through it in order to get to the strip mall. And one day, um, the that area was kind of cordoned off. And it was turned into more of the strip mall, basically, mm-hmm. which... Um, was just totally devastating to me at age 12. <laughs> um, and I think that's when I started to mm. really think about the environment and become a, a tiny environmentalist. Um, because I just, I kept thinking <laughs> about those little creatures that were there and I wondered where they were. Mm. Um, so yeah, I think that was probably the start the start of it. I also read Watership Down around that time too, which is a beautiful book about rabbits. Um, and, uh, and also about the environment and, and there's a, a really, it's a, it's a beautiful, beautiful book that everyone should read. <laughs> yeah. Highly recommend. Um, so how do you think it is that 
the language we use changes the way that we engage with or interact with nature? Like, or what do you think is so important about the way we talk about the natural world? Like, why does it matter the way that we talk about nature? So sort of combining these ideas of like what language, how, how language influences the natural world and how the natural world influences nature, or sorry, how the natural world influences language. There's so many writers who write about this beautifully. And I think, um, I mean, like, like the Mambaya quote that you started out with, the word resource is a, a word that we use to describe something like water or or, or mountains. And it's a, it's a word that, that creates distance, right? It, it's a word that's all about our um, consumption. Um, and if we were just to use the word water, that really changes the way we think about the same exact thing. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we are made of water. Um, and I think that it has really important kind of uh, and serious consequences when you're talking about policy and the ways we kind of interact with the natural world. So even words like um, environmentalism have kind of changed over the years. I think we're starting to use words like environmental justice or climate justice, um, where you know environmentalism really makes us think about our relationship with you know trees and animals and. Um, how we can take care of those beings. When we start using the word environmental justice or climate justice, then we're thinking about human beings. We're bringing human beings mm-hmm. into that. Mm-hmm. And we can start um, really recognizing that our you know, destruction of the landscape is also hurting humans that live in certain parts of the world and, and hurting humans disproportionately. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, people who are poorer or people of color are more likely to be... Um, are more likely to be hurt by by um, pollution and um, some of our um, you know destruction of the environment. I mean, there's a lot there's a lot there for me around. I mean, just thinking about when you talk about the word resource, that it it says something about our culture. That that's you know, it's a resource is a commodity. So mm-hmm. it's it feels unsurprising to me that in the Western world that we consider something like water a commodity a resource, something that is uh, literally by nature part of the money world, the capital world, which is always re- number one, sort of always relating to how humans think about it and not necessarily what any other creature or, what it, you know, it's centering humans, I guess, in that narrative. Right. And then also, you know, it's <laughs> it's been a minute since I've brought up the movie Arrival. I actually haven't seen it. Oh, no. I know. Um, I know. Well, there's a part in it that you might be familiar with where, so the main character is a linguist and they bring her in to sort of, uh, to translate the graphic language of these aliens that have landed on earth. And number one, that's really cool. There's, it's a graphic based language, which I think is super cool and related to your work because you so often create like, you know, what you, I think you try to imagine what future like pictograms or alphabets and that sort of thing might look like. Um, and then, yeah, but there's a, there's a part in it where they bring up the Sapir Wharf 
uh, theory, which is uh, something I hadn't heard of before watching the movie and something I have been told multiple times afterward that linguists mostly don't believe is true, but it feels true in my experience. So I love to talk about it regardless, which is that Nate, um, the way that we, like our, the language that we use actually shapes the way that we see the world is sort of how I interpret that. Um, I think officially it says it's, it states that language doesn't just give people a way to express their thoughts. It influences or even determines those thoughts on the flip side. The evolution of a language is shaped by the culture and environment its speakers live in. That just feels like an obvious thing to me. I'm not quite sure of the linguist's contention with it, but um, I mean, I've heard you even talk before about how the way that our culture conceives time shapes yes. our language and, and then also the environment, how we conceive of climate justice because, <laughs> because we have a hard time conceiving of like long or deep time. Um, and even, you know, I think it's one thing to say something like climate change, which just sounds like a, well, <laughs> the temperature is changing. And doesn't feel like all that impactful. But when I heard people start referring to it as climate collapse, I was like, well, that I feel a lot more urgent about that. (laughs) Uh, So, yeah, it seems obvious to me that the way that we speak about our world influences the way that we behave and see those things uh, or engage with, behave every day, policy, like you said, all of those things. Mm -hmm. And that also then nature sort of reflects back on our language. And I love to think I was reading some about how like certain things disappear to our sight when we don't have words to name them. Yes. Um, And that different cultures sometimes have like larger span, you know, like a larger sort of bucket of words to pull from and the way that influences the, the, the way that we see certain things that you actually in having a name for something that you actually see it. And if you don't see it, then it disappears. And that, yeah, I don't know. I I could sort of ramble on forever, but. No, no. Yes. Yes. To all of that, that I, um, yes. And intuitively that makes a lot of sense to me too, that hypothesis. I think from what I was reading, um, linguists kind of don't believe in it to an extreme, but they believe in aspects aspects of it like light Mm, uh, like the light light version of that which makes sense to me too um I think yeah I mean you think about words like Anthropocene versus Capitalocene and how Mm. those two words influence the way we think about you know climate change that is um caused by humans versus climate change that is caused by western industrial industrialized nations like mm-hmm. how using one word over the other really affects the way we, we think about it. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I do you know about the Dictionary of Obscure Sorrows? No. <laughs> this is a website that I found like a decade ago or so. Mm. And it's this guy who, I think it's a guy, someone who um, came up with a kind of a dictionary of words to describe things that we don't have names for yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the words is uh, sonder. Uh, sonder is the realization that each random passerby has a life as real and vivid as our own. Mm. Can you spell it? It's S-O-N-D-E-R. Oh, sonder. Yeah, okay. 
Yeah. And that one has kind of been adopted into our kind of popular culture a little bit. People mm-hmm. are using that word more and more. Mm-hmm. But it does, I mean, that's a feeling that I've certainly had before. But now that that word is floating around more, I feel like I'm thinking those things more. I'm thinking about that more. That's coming mm-hmm. up more. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, yeah, about the other thing about pro- pronouns too. I don't know if you've read the bit by Robin Wall Kemmerer about the ways we, um, you know, re- we refer to animals and plants using it. It, yeah. Um, you I know, think maybe is, an On Being podcast, I heard her interviewed talking about that. I think, yeah, I think that, that might be where I heard it too. But um, I guess going back to like things like lichen and rocks and, you know, the natural world, like what do you feel like something like lichen, like what would a lichen what does lichen language look like? Or maybe what would a, a future language that we might start to incorporate more of the natural world into? Like what could, what could lichen, like if, if we could learn something from lichen, I guess, what would a future language look like that might incorporate some of those things? So, yes, I mean, I, I, I guess I have a little bit of a pet project where I'm trying to figure out what, it, what would, uh, a, la- a language of lichen look like? What would a lichen language look like? I, I mm. don't know. Mm. There's good, there's good alliteration in there, at least. That's good. Yeah. Um, and well, well, what are some of the qualities that you feel like you observe about lichen that might inform what its language would be? I, I don't know if this is exactly answering your question, but I'm, I'm interested in, right, how all the different elements are communicating with each other, but also lichens are kind of unintentionally communicating with us. <sighs> too Mm. they are extremely resilient but also very sensitive yeah well yeah don't like lichen can live through some really harsh climates right and has lived through a lot of time yes they live in some of the harshest weirdest places on earth you know next to volcanoes and in places where no other plants grow um but they um they, they don't like pollution. And so scientists will actually have actually studied lichens to kind of understand kind of where um, pollution is happening in an environment. Mm. Um, so they're kind of um, indicating or they're indicator species. They're, they're showing us uh, whether uh, an environment is healthy or not. Mm. Mm. Uh, that actually connects to me back to something that I was going to say a little while ago that you were talking about, you know, how um, people of color and other folks that don't have as much access to, to certain resources that, you know, they, they experience more pollution than other folks. And uh, like I heard several years ago that the, the strongest possible indicator of your life expectancy is your zip code. Yes, so, I've, which, I've heard that too. Which makes sense because it, it has to do with so, like where you live has to do with so many things. It's not just the pollution you right. experience, but it's the, how, how close are you to healthy food? How close are you to great medical care? Mm-hmm. You know, um, those kinds of things. So that makes sense, but it's also really devastating. But I think that's really interesting thinking about that lichen is showing us where a good zip code might be. Right. Or, or where a bad zip code might also be. 
Yes, that's really... I hesitate to use the words good and bad, but uh, more or less healthy, I guess. Right. Um, And they have done these studies in urban environments, looking at lichens growing on telephone poles and trying to see, you know, can it tell us how polluted this area is, how difficult it is for for creatures and also for humans. Um, And yes, isn't it extraordinary that lichens can live in these extremely harsh environments and yet they can't they can't grow or don't grow as well in a polluted, mm-hmm. um, in, in a place that is polluted by humans. Yeah. I think it's so cool too, because I mean, I think again, it says so much about language and different, different ways of speaking or communicating, I guess. Mm-hmm. Right. Because while we don't see lichen as something that talks, you know, we're not having a literal audible conversation with lichen. There is a language in their appearance and where they appear that is translating, it's communicating something to us. And so there's all of these different ways of, and again, this sort of goes back to that like idea of the Sapir-Whorf uh, theory. That's sort of the idea of if, if, like, yeah, just different ways of conceiving of time. Like one of my favorite books is Einstein's Dreams, which is ah, just- Amazing uh, book. Yeah, so incredible. Yeah. Um, you know, which is, I think I've also mentioned in my, I, I found out about it through Lincoln Carr, which is one of my other early episodes. And, you know, it's, it's basically us. It, it's just sort of what are like, you know, several different scenarios that the way that we, we might live culturally, if we thought of time differently. And, so brilliant. <laughs> yeah. So, so brilliant. And yeah, that, I mean, in that episode too, with Lincoln, we talk about different ways of seeing or thinking, I guess thinking is, is more correct. So, you know, do you think in text communication? Do you think in, um, you know, poetry? Do you think in engineering speak, you know, um, like a NASA astronaut might speak and think in. And, and so I love, you know, I was also reading something recently. I, I can't, recall totally, but it was talking about the ways that bees also communicate with each other, that there's a form of like a different, it's a different kind of intelligence. Uh-huh. So they, they were talking about it, not as different ways of seeing or thinking, but as a different kinds of intelligences. Mm-hmm. And so, so I think we can then apply that to something like lichen or trees or rocks that have a language that they are communicating something to us in a different way of speaking. And there's so much we can learn from that. I mean, I think, um, and this all kind of goes back to my kind of original fascination and and kind of fear of language. I think when I was a little kid, I was just even more shy than I am now. I, I didn't I didn't speak at all for a while, um, and I remember my classmates thinking that I. Like past an age where that would have been sort of socially oh, normal. Definitely, yes. Maybe third grade, second grade, third grade. Wow. Um, and you know, I didn't I didn't speak at all for a while. And even at home? I, I did speak at home, but I didn't okay. speak at school. Yeah. And um but and I remember being so kind of furious that that people could still read me. So I was mm. still expressing mm. myself still through communicating something. Yeah. I, verbal or body language. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. it's a terrifying, terrible thing. There I was trying to be so <laughs> quiet, trying to not, trying to make it so that no one noticed me. But I would blush furiously when I was angry, when I was embarrassed, when I was sad. You know, it was mm-hmm. all there. Um, and I think that's also one of the reasons why I'm an artist. I'm so interested in this, like the visual visual communication the lichen that is changing color and mm. and expressing something about its uncomfortableness and I, I think a lot about those kind of aspects blushing you know heat goosebumps um you know just the ways we kind of close in or open up and our bodies and um, when I'm making a, a painting or even painting a rock or another kind of organism, I think a lot about those elements. Now, how can I use blushing heat for goosebumps mm. um, and that kind of kind yeah, of? Yeah, it's like the ways that our bodies communicate. Yeah. Yeah. And then, right, and all that relates to the, the jealousy of, of trees and birds and, <laughs> and lightning bugs and, and um you know, um, yeah, back when I was dating, I remember thinking, you know, that this, this Tinder thing is, is, is terrible. I just wish I was a Bowerbird. Do you know about I wish I were, I don't, but I wish I were a lot of things that had nothing to do with Tinder. (laughs) Yeah, this is terrible. So bowerbirds, blue bowerbirds just um, don't speak, right? That's, you know, don't use uh, human language, which is nice. Mm -hmm. And they, they uh, um, build these elaborate architectural structures, nests that are just this incredible, incredible bit of architecture. It's art, basically they're artists. Um, The blue bowerbirds only use blue materials so they travel all around and make these beautiful nests that are blue. And then the mate, their potential mate, will just walk by and say, "Oh, that's a beautiful nest. Oh, you're you're a good artist. All right, I'm gonna <laughs> hook up with you." That seems so much easier. Seems so much better. <laughs> it actually makes me feel somewhat better that you know that it's um, that it's not just human nature, but nature to sort of go here. Look at my my cool thing. You know, right. look at look at how cool I am, and sort of right. visual communication, like either how I look or you know, how my life looks to you or whatever that might be. Um, but yeah, go ahead. Yeah. I don't, <laughs> I don't know if this is, is more, more advanced or more, uh, compassionate or a, a better way of being or anything like that, but it is a different way of being. And I, I don't yeah. know. I admire it. I have power for it. <laughs> it's a, like a different way of peacocking. Yeah. It makes so much sense to me, more sense to me now, I guess, the sort of hearing you have been someone who has struggled with communication for a long time and like deeply yeah. so when you were really young. And so of of course you have this like personal, you know, sort of bent toward what it means to struggle to communicate and how we communicate and what gets lost in communication and, and all of those things. And um, I love that. Yeah. Even just thinking... I love even thinking about, you know, like you said, so much of your work that it's, it reflects this sort of like shyness, maybe loneliness and awkwardness that there's, like you said, sort of using, you know, a a painting can't speak either, right? Like it has no, and especially like when you're exhibiting something, unless there's, I mean, you get limited space to sort of explain what your piece is about next to, you know, a, a piece in a gallery, 
And so the, the viewer is left to mostly translate what you're trying to communicate on their own. And there's so much of what you're doing in your work that when you do show human parts of a human body, that there is like a, a blush or hair or mm-hmm. goosebumps, like you, like, like you said, that there are these ways of communicating that sort of awkwardness and shyness and <laughs> struggle and anxiety and all of those things. So it, yeah, I, I love that, that you're yeah telling a very personal story and yeah. I mean, I, I think we all probably right. struggle to communicate in, in different ways and my story is yeah. not you know, that intense, but, but uh, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a thing and absolutely has uh, all of those, those, uh, those, uh, those awkwardnesses are in my work for yeah. sure going back to the, like, how does the language we use change the way that we interact with nature? And there's this quote, again, another quote from George Monbiot that says, words encode values that are subconsciously triggered when we hear them. When certain phrases are repeated, they can shape and reinforce a worldview, making it hard for us to see an issue differently. So one interesting thing happened. <laughs> you know, in, in 2015, I don't know if you know this, this story about the Oxford Children's Dictionary. I don't. So um, there was this, 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 this thing that happened where they uh, decided to, the people who edit the, the Oxford Children's Dictionary decided to kind of remove a lot of words about the natural world, like badger Whoa. and buttercup and tadpole. And they brought in words, like they replaced them with, with words like chat room and vlogging. Wow. Um, which, you know, a, a lot of writers like, Margaret Atwood specifically, and and some others kind of wrote this letter um, of uh, just totally appalled that this is happening. Um, And, you know, I I just, I think that's really interesting. It's sad, but uh, I also, you know, I, I think that there's a lot of new technology that kind of encourages wonder actually. Like um, there, there are all these amazing apps that help us kind of um, identify birds and plants and stars and things, and I mm-hmm. I love that. So I, I think the kind of the new words about technology are great, but uh, the idea that you know a word like badger, uh, badger or buttercup is not part of a child a child's kind of vocabulary, is 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 really sad, um, and it speaks to kind of a lot of loss. And, um, yeah, I don't exactly know what to do with that. I think after those writers uh, wrote that letter <laughs> to, to the Oxford Children's Dictionary, they brought back some of those words, uh, which, is, which, which I'm glad for. Um, but it, it, it makes me think about kind of pers- like perception and what like, we pay attention to as well. I remember mm-hmm. when I first moved to North Adams, um, Massachusetts, uh, all I could see was the mountains, you know, I was, I was looking at the, the, this is a little va- town in the little valley and the Berkshire mountains. And there are these beautiful kind of green mountains all around. And then once I started to, to know people and I started going to the museums and the stores and things, the, the town really shifted for me. And I started mm. seeing humans, like seeing only the human world. And I have to mm-hmm. keep kind of reminding myself to look at the mountains um, and I think language can kind of help us to kind of to guide us in, in what we pay attention to. 
I think there's something too for me that's a, a type of loss um, that relates to time. So that because the way that we relate to the world is in such like efficiency and speed and, you know, technology is about help in a lot of ways helping us to do things faster than we could before certain activities. And, you know, I, I've taken up more walking recently and, you know, that we, that we walk so little, uh, so many of us walk so little these days and, uh, for me, I think a lot of that is an act of resistance in slowing down mm-hmm. and that the more I'm actually able to slow down my physical movement, the more I see of my actual like neighborhood of my city yes. of the mountains and those sorts of things. Um, mm-hmm. and so, yeah, I think there's a kind of loss also, you know, all these connections between language and loss and, um, seeing like that in seeing it affects our language and, you know, our language affects our seeing those sorts of things. So I think something about time also that the sort of slowing down of time is a way of being more present and attentive and therefore also having a bigger vocabulary of what's happening around you. I don't know where I was going with that, but I mean, I think that's just been something that I've been trying to actively practice recently. I think, yes, I, I think that's wonderful. I admire that. Yeah. I mean, the English language too, kind of the way we talk about time is very different from a lot of other Mm -hmm. uh, cultures and historically we, you know, in the English language, we kind of divide time up into hours and minutes and seconds and we start feeling like, uh, you know, we can waste time or we can gain, you know, we, mm. we can hold on to time or save time. Save time. Um, and I think in, in other languages, time is more cyclical mm. um, and it might be easier to think about deep time, which I think is mm. so important for, for us and kind of being able to grapple with the, the, the challenges around, um, you know, climate change, uh, because we're, we are only just now beginning to see these, um, you know, devastating storms and things that, um, I don't know, we need, we need, we need, we need more of a language. We need a language that helps us, you know, our <laughs> helps, helps humans to, to think about time in a deeper way. Yeah. Maybe just incorporating more of the, you know, that idea of from indigenous cultures of, yeah. uh, you know, seven generations forward and backward yes. that are, that our actions today affect, you know, several generations in front of us. And mm-hmm. yeah, I think you're right that it's so interesting. I hadn't really thought about, I've thought about before the way that we, you know, we talk about time as though it can be wasted or, um, yeah, saved or any of those things, which I think is so interesting because it's naturally an idea that time is scarce. And so it's, mm-hmm. it's a mentality of scarcity rather than abundance. Yeah. And I think in cyclical time or in, yeah, an abundant way of seeing time that in some way, I mean, one of my favorite things is to think about, yeah, just the, what physics teach us, teaches us about the nature of time and that, you know, I think 
I think scientists, please don't just go to town on me for this because I just don't know enough about it. But from my recollection, I feel like so something more like Newtonian time is something more like the way that we think where Einsteinian time is that it's relative and that time can shrink or expand based on where you're at. And so that too, I think we have this experience of, like I was saying, like in walking, when I'm slowing myself down, it actually feels like it expands time. Mm -hmm. And so I think sort of like Einstein's dreams, this like <laughs> experiment that we can do and going, wait, I think time is, is as abundant as I want it to be. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I have enough time. I'm not wasting any time. Yeah. Enough time exists for the right things to happen, which is something that I've learned from Adrian Marie Brown, like all mm -hmm. of those sorts of things. Um, and yeah, that it, but I hadn't thought about the way that in this culture that we really do break time down into the tiny, tiniest possible increments, which is such a capitalistic way of seeing yeah. time. Uh -huh. It's like, how can we portion out to the smallest possible degree and then make as much profit out of each of those segments as possible? So of, mm -hmm. of course, that's the way that we speak of, of course. time. Yeah. Yeah. Like, can and we I stop talking about seconds and break it down to like <laughs> nanoseconds? Like how small yeah. can we get yeah. time so that we can make as much, you know, push as much productivity out of each possible second? And then we have daylight savings time. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Which just can, confuses everyone. It's very confusing. Yeah. Yeah. All these ways that, yeah, we sort of force our, our concept of time on the natural yeah. world and how that affects the natural world. Mm -hmm. Oof. Yeah. Um, who are other people that you feel like have inspired you to think this way? I feel like even, um, so I read something also about your dad that you maybe well, as a child that your dad sort of helped you to think in this way. Is that right? Did I read that right? Yes. Yes. I mean, um, both of my parents are, um, very curious about the natural world. We would go on lots of hikes growing up and they would name all the, all the plants and, and butterflies or try, try to. Um, but my dad is a master storyteller. So when, you know, my sister and I were little, he would uh, ask us uh, for three elements um, and we would come up with kind of wildly different elements like, you know, a crouton and <laughs> Saturn and a lung or something. Uh -huh. And and then he would weave this crazy beautiful story about it <laughs> and and tell us a bedtime story mm. which uh you know there are some of my favorite memories and um it taught me to love stories and I love it though because it's 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 like someone from an early age was practice uh helping you learn how to think in yeah. a way where where he was, he was modeling what it was to weave together seemingly disparate things into something mm -hmm. that was a connected story. Yeah. Yeah. And such well, an act of wild, wild creativity too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I thought that's where the, so the original sort of quote that part of the description of the show comes from is a quote from Steve Jobs that just says, creativity is only connecting the seemingly unconnectable. That's mm -hmm. just like the only act mm -hmm. that, you know, yes. that creativity really is. Yeah. Um, so yeah, of course that's a super, it, you have to be super creative in order to connect a crouton and Saturn and, <laughs> and a, a lung. lung. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Take some um, real digging. 
Oh, yeah, yeah. And I mean, I think it certainly relates to all of these little, the, the communication attempts I've done where, where I think about these strange couples, you know, the two two very different kind of beings put together and they have to have a conversation somehow. Yeah. Um, What's the, don't you have like a, a, a pollinator deity also? Like you've been... <laughs> Pollinator deity. So that's that's a new project where um, I'm making these pollinator deities. So I'm thinking about I, I'm kind of taking on the persona of a, a future anthropologist, a future time traveling anthropologist, mm -hmm. and um, I've uncovered this dig site and uh, 31st century dig site, and this is a world where um, where there are no more pollinating insects. And so mm. the people who live there are really struggling to grow food. Mm. And so they have created, you know, this kind of spiritual, this kind of, they've created magical beings. I'm really interested in kind of the history of magical beings and the history of monsters and why we create these imaginary mm. beings that kind of take uh -huh. care of us, take care of us or kind of symbolize danger in interesting ways. But anyway, yeah. so they create these, these beings called pollinator deities. And they make tapestries of them and they wrap their children in them for safety. And these pollinator deities have many, many appendages used for pollination. And um, so I'm trying to figure out who they are, what they are, what they look like, and yeah, trying to that, decode the language. Yeah, that makes so much sense because I'm thinking, you know, back to, oh, who knows, like early, early, early sort of dawn of man kinds of things that you know, the first sort of inclination to go like, well, we realize that we need food uh -huh. and, and we connect the fact that food somehow is connected to sunlight and it's connected to water uh -huh. and, and the gods that got created out of that, that was like, you know, creating like a sun God or a water God or, you know, uh -huh. some sort of gods out of that. So it feels, and, and then, then of course, so then that affects that culture's religion, uh -huh. behaviors, language, mm -hmm. you know, that sort of thing. So it, it makes so much sense that in a future ecology, if we have lost our pollinators, that the thing that we would be praying to uh -huh. is a pollinator deity. Yes. Like, please, please help us get our things pollinated. Uh-huh. Yep. Yeah. That's super cool. So that's a brand new project. We'll see. We'll see where it goes. Love it. You were asking, though, just a minute ago, yeah, who who has inspired you? And I, you yeah. asked about my dad. Um, I think also um, there are just, there's so many writers who yeah. have inspired me throughout the years. I mean, I think Robin Wall Kimmerer probably at the center of all of that, her braiding mm -hmm. sweet grass and gathering mm -hmm. moss. Um, Water Sit Down, which I mentioned before, mm -hmm. um, is this, I mean, it's a, it's a children's book, but it's about rabbits and, um, and environmental change. And, and it's a beautiful book that has really inspired mm -hmm. me. And um, I think also just being uh, in an academic environment, I live on a college campus right now. Um, mm -hmm. And my partner is a scientist and I'm able to spend time with all of these different people who have very specific kind of perceptual experiences. So I'll spend time with an ornithologist and, and he sees the world in birds, you know, that, yeah. that's like, that, that's how he moves through the world. Yeah. And then, then I'll spend time with someone who is studying fluid dynamics and she sees the world 
in that way, just thinking mm-hmm. about how like liquids move and how people move and how herds move and crowds move. Um, so that has made me think a lot about kind of the different languages that might describe those things and the, diff- the very separate worlds that we live in and mm-hmm. what happens when the, like what kind of language we might use to kind of bring those kind of separate perceptual experiences together. Yeah, that's super cool. I, I met a scientist it, at this, it's called uh, SciComm Camp. So it was science communicators oh, at like a great. little, like all and sort of an adult summer camp situation. Allie Perfect. Ward was the keynote speaker and she's friends with a, a lot of the co-founders there. So she was there for a lot of the oh. weekend. Um, but, and I think she just recently interviewed and by the time this episode airs, it will be well past. But um, there was a guy there that, does biomineralogy. And so he studies all the ways that, you know, uh, organic life creates hard things in the world. So shells Uh, and, um, yeah, that sort of thing. And it's so cool. And just hearing you think about, you know, talk about that. I'm like, well, yeah, he probably sees a lot of the world through a lens of, uh, like hard, yeah. materials that get yeah. made by organic substances or creatures or whatever. And oh my goodness. Well, yes. And uh, that's another thing that relates to deep time, but um, rocks and trees that contain the history of the world. Mm. Uh, I, I love all of those stories that there are trees that can, like you can look at tree rings and see ancient celestial events you can look at rocks and see evidence of kind of, of ancient uh, occurrences. And uh, I don't know, that's just another example of this kind yeah. of this, the story, stories that, that nature holds and what we can learn from them and the way they're like communicating to us through, like, through a very, very, very ancient language. Yeah, that also just made me think about the way, I mean, it's like the body, body keeps the score like the way yeah. that our, our own bodies actually tell a story of time so mm-hmm. th- that we contain, you could probably look in us and see yeah. our traumas, our, uh-huh. you know, what, what, what we ate, what we didn't, you know, um, Definitely. probably you could probably get a sense of where we lived in the world based mm-hmm. off of all of those things. So like the way that, to, you know, yeah, trees don't just contain rings. We also contain all mm-hmm. of our own history and a story of time in, in one sort of capsule. Yes. Yeah. So cool. So cool. Well, I really hope I get to visit your studio or something one day. It just looks Aww. like a very fun place to hang out. I hope, please come visit. Come visit and we'll go to Mass Mocha and then you can come visit my studio. Oh Sounds my goodness. Great. And then we that. can go to the observatory and look at the moon. Oh, all of those things. Yeah. We'll just look at the stars. We'll talk to all the scientists <laughs> together. <Okay. laughs> we'll just have Sounds a real funny. nerdy ecology astronomy time. Sounds perfect. <laughs> Okay, wasn't that conversation amazing? I love Ashley and I love her work. I'm so inspired by what she does in the world. And I just love constantly thinking about the ways that we're always, like our bodies are always communicating with each other, the ways that we're communicating with nature and it's communicating back to us and just our relationships between humans, ecology, and the world around us. And Ashley is constantly helping me to engage with those ideas. And now that she's done that and you've heard her, I hope that you feel the same way and you want to follow her online. You can do that 
at ashleyelizawilliams.com and on Instagram at ashleyelizawilliams. I'm of course going to link to that along with everything else that we talked about in the show notes on my site at thisplusthat.com slash episodes. And I have to tell you, seriously, go follow Ashley's Instagram account. It is by far one of my favorite Instagram accounts to follow because not only is it constantly beautiful and she's constantly helping me think through these things, but she's been doing these awesome new paintings where she'll paint these huge rocks that are covered in super colorful, stunningly bold colors um, of lichen. And then she'll take cutouts of those rocks and photograph them in nature. And it's, it's hard to explain. You just have to see, you just have to see it, but it's so moving for some reason, but it's always so interesting to me how Ashley will place the tactile part of her work, which, you know, can seem sort of two dimensional or on paper and then put it in nature. And it's like you almost can visually see or feel a sense of the way that the work is communicating with each other. And I think that's so important because it says something again about helping us as humans realize over and over again that we are nature. Like we are not separate from nature, we are nature. And so the things that we create, the materials that we use in the universe to do our creativity are also part of nature. And they are constantly in conversation. And I also find it really important in a conversation that's so relevant like this about humans and our connection to nature to again, do a land acknowledgement, which I like to do in every episode. And so that, that means saying that I do these interviews from my home on the native land of the Ute, Cheyenne and Arapaho people. But also to say that I am well aware as I continue to seek out just like doing this better and better and self-reflecting and also acting on my own whiteness and privilege and um, doing my own decolonization work that when land acknowledgements are done, they are often devoid of a connection between land and also the labor of black people that help to cultivate and tend to that land and then build the wealth of mostly white people in the wake of uh, genocide, the genocide of native folks. But even beyond that, that land acknowledgements are so often, they're so often felt like they're performative, right? So that I'm just saying this so that I can sort of check a box and go, I've done my job as a white person to really think about my connection to land and the native people and that history that's there. And I wanna say that not only do I continue to do this land acknowledgement as much as I can in each of these episodes, because I find it important, but I do it also because it's a, it's a type of accountability for me so that every time I say it, I know that I can't just say it on here and not also take more and more action um, individually and collectively to know, um, to really think about what that has to do in my life and how I can better show up to that conversation. And part of that for me is really, it's so much. I think I want to say that it's, it, yeah, it's so many things, but I think part of my work and doing this plus that is literally helping me and us hopefully live into a story of connection and intimacy rather than a story of separation. And I think that um, white folks and Western folks for so much of our history have um, imparted and forced a story of separation on so many folks that cuts us off from each other, 
that keeps us cut off from the land and a relationship with our land and cut off from communities in general and cut off from ourselves that we we not only say that you can only be this or that but that we have a hard time integrating all of the seemingly disparate parts of ourselves and i think that is so intimately connected to a conversation about land and native folks and the history there and so this is part of how i want to contribute to that is doing this not only engages helps me engage individually with how i continue to knit together these seemingly disparate parts of myself but also help us hold greater and greater complexity and nuance so that we can knit together all of the seemingly disparate parts of our world and our collective communities right but even beyond that like i find it really important to do this sort of um, knitting together in other ways and also building a relationship with native folks and bipoc folks um, and part of how i do that is not only making sure that i'm centering more and more the voices of those people above myself and um, in the work that I do so that the way that that shows up is how consistently I'm trying to make sure that not even trying, like it's so easy if you do even a little bit of work to find the amazing indigenous and BIPOC, BIPOC folks who are actually leading a conversation, of course, and have been for millennia about what it means to live in collective community and what it means to bridge art and science and all of the things that I think I'm trying to bridge here. Right. And so it's making sure that I center the voices as much as possible of those people on this podcast and in even all the links that I share and what I write about in my essays and my newsletters and all of those things. Right. And yeah, all the ways that I'm like reconnecting to my own food, I'm getting closer to to my food and my sources and gardening more and getting to know my land intimately, the land that I live on and taking walks around my neighborhood and becoming familiar with the trees that are here and the plants and animals that live here and the million and one ways that we become like bioregionalists. That's a term I learned from Asia Dorsey. And again, she's in an upcoming episode that you'll hear, but I guess all of this is to say that like, I am actively and constantly trying to live into re a restitching together of myself and my own story. And you hear me talk about that often on the podcast, how I'm knitting back together stories of religion and spirituality, of queer community, of family, of just like broken friendships and all these other things, right? And that is always going to include my relationship to land. And also doing a better job of more and more getting to know local indigenous folks and knowing how they would like me to do a land acknowledgement. So I know that I'm not doing this perfectly yet. I know that I'm still working on it, but I want to open up this conversation as part of, um, especially again, a conversation like I've just had with Ashley about um, communication and land and our connection to it. And even beyond that, that this is the work that I am constantly doing because I think the thing that is killing us, literally killing us, I think so much of my health problems are actually connected to a disconnection from land and each other. Like I literally think that my body has been sick with autoimmune illness for years, chronic autoimmune illness, because I have lived in a story of separation. And that story is not just individual, it is collective, of course, and they are mutually reinforcing. But what I think I and so many other people and the voices, of course, of Native folks and Indigenous folks and uh, BIPOC folks who are leading this conversation because they've been needing to for so long in their marginalized communities, that 
we absolutely must, like literally we must because we are dying. If we don't become reconnected to ourselves and reintegrating all of the disparate pieces of ourselves and each other and collective community and to land, if that work does not get done, we are literally dying. I am literally dying because I have lived and I have operated in a collectiveness and a collective consciousness that speaks to separation every day of my life. And I know that I can't do it because it's physically killing me. It's spiritually killing me. It's emotionally killing me. It's doing all these things. And I think we are living in that and we are just learning on the edge of what we feel comfortable with into a story that gets us maybe back or maybe for the first time into a truly integrated story that says we are connected intimately and your health affects mine and your land affects mine and we are all in this together or we will die. So that's all, that's a lot, but that's all I'll say on that. But I felt like, again, it was really important to say in this conversation, especially because Ashley and I are both white women, uh, cis white women. And, you know, it's whatever it's, we have stuff to say about land and nature and communication and ecology, of course. But when I'm doing a land acknowledgement, please know that I am constantly considering those things and that this work is my way of actually knitting together and stitching and weaving and doing that translation work between communities and people and stories that I think is so essential for our world right now. Okay, that's it for me on that. But again, find me online at this plus that pod on Instagram and Twitter. You can find me and the show notes, of course, on thisplusthat.com. That's also where you can sign up for my newsletter. I have just switched from doing the newsletter every other week, which always happens in between weeks when I release a podcast to I'm going to start experimenting with what it means to just put out newsletters twice a month on no particular schedule. Because again, I'm someone who suffers from some chronic autoimmune stuff. And I think literally the disease of control is killing me and the control of having to operate on a constant, um, a constant thing that sticks to the same schedule every week without end just does not work for me or my body anymore. So bear with me. I'm, I'm toying with that, but you can sign up for my, uh, hopefully now twice monthly newsletters by going to my website there. You're going to get, like, if you sign up for it, you're going to get my essays. You'll get links to things that are related to these conversations. So I do beyond the show notes, I do additional reading that you should think about looking into after you listen to each of these conversations and something so exciting, right? I'm giving you all this material, giving so much material, right? It's almost like we're in class together. That's sort of what I want it to feel like is that like, maybe not class, but like we're just in a constant like book club maybe, but we're always talking about interesting ideas. And um, I'm gonna move on my chair. So one of the things that I just started was this, uh, the service called community. Forgive me that, if maybe when I release, I'm hoping I'm still running it by the time I release this episode with uh, Ashley, but community is this thing that's like, I get to, like, if you text me at this particular number, I actually will get to text you like we're in text friendship communication, but it's not a group text thread. So I run this whole community now uh, of my audience that's on this platform called community and you sign up for it by texting me. I'll give you a number for that in the show notes of this episode also. And of course in the newsletter. And what I'm so excited about with that is that it's a way that beyond social media where we're not like fighting algorithms or battling hundreds of other people and, you know, low quality content that's not keeping us connected to ourselves and to each other, that I want to send you much shorter 
things to be engaging with me on than I can in my newsletters or social or in this podcast. So I would love for you to sign up for that. You can find it at my website also. I think it's under a page called text me. Um, that's probably the easiest way to find it, but it's just an experiment. I want to try it out. I'm going to send like, you know, here's the thing I'm reading or here's a, a, a private special message just from the latest podcast guest, just for you if you're signed up for this, right? And it sort of takes a little bit more explaining than this. And I feel like I've been talking forever already. So I'm going to close this intro out by saying, as usual, I'm truly honored to get to have these conversations. I never thought I was going to be able to get to do this, to like have an excuse to talk to all of my favorite people and then put these incredible conversations out into the world. So I am so grateful for your presence, for listening. If you're still here after that long outro, after a long conversation with Ashley, I hope you find all of it nourishing. That's what I'm here for. I want us all to feel more and more enlivened, enlivened and to keep pursuing the things that make us feel more and more alive. Because like I said, I think that's the only way we make it folks. I think that's how we, I think that's how we survive. I think that's our collective future is gearing our lives toward more and more aliveness and cutting out more and more of the things that kill us and, um, don't make us come alive. And maybe it's not cutting out, but like just all the ways that we need to learn to integrate actually pursuing more and more of the things that light our bodies all the way up and that our bodies just like a conversation about communication in our bodies. I think our bodies are constantly telling us what makes us more and more alive. And we are so used to ignoring that communication signal from our bodies and instead doing the things that we think we're obligated to do, that we can't do because we won't make enough money and all of those things that we know are constantly actually killing our bodies and that we just keep ignoring that as well. And it's making us more and more sick. So I just find this conversation so vital so important to what we're up to in the world. And I'm so grateful to have had it with Ashley and I can't wait to continue having it with you. Please sign up for all the things, rate and subscribe to the podcast, you know, like all of that helps us continue this conversation. I can't wait to have more until next time.